From KUT News and the Texas Tribune, this is The Ticket. We demand our liberty. But this election is not just about what laws we're going to pass. Americans have come back from some pretty tough economic times. We need to stop limiting kids in poor neighborhoods. I declare to you today as a candidate for president of the United States. I'm Ben Philpott. And I'm Jay Root. This week on the show, it's Carly Fiorina's turn under the microscope on Stump Interrupted. And as more and more candidates enter the 2016 field, we'll speak with Washington Post political reporter Chris Saliza about the big stories in the 2016 campaign so far. And on the straight ticket, it's the Texas version of Rocky, Rick Perry's presidential run, round two. But first, Jay, the field is getting crowded here. Uh, According to Fox News, only 10 are going to survive to the first debate, though. What do you think of that? Well, so what happens? So you, you get the you 10 top candidates, and then what about the other guys? Do they, they get, like, their own little debate or that nobody they, watches? They what? have something in the uh, Howard Johnson down the road from wherever <laughs> the main debate is. But, you know, you mentioned the second tier. It's funny. So the Fox News one, which is the first debate, is just the top 10 uh, or top 11 or 12 if there's a tie for 10th place. But the CNN debate the next month, is actually going to have a second-tier debate. They're going to start the show with a, you know, B-team, and then after they have their moment in the sun, they're going to go with their own top 10 candidates later in the program. What are the ratings going to be for that? I mean, is anybody going to watch the lower tier? Are you kidding? Don't you think the lower tier would be the most interesting part of the debate? Well, I, I guess they're just going <laughs> to, you know, hack into each other to try to get into the, you know, I, I guess if you win that lower tier debate, then maybe the next time you get into the top tier, I don't know. It's like a Premier League uh, soccer, I believe. This is like uh, a reality show, isn't it? Avid listeners to the ticket already know that we've been breaking down candidate announcement speeches each week in a little segment we like to call Stump Interrupted. But for newcomers, here's the deal. We've been taking these speeches in order of when the candidate jumped into the race. So today is our sixth major candidate to declare a run, former Hewlett-Packard executive Carly Fiorina. Now, like the candidate that we're about to hear her attack, she didn't announce in a packed auditorium during a 30-minute speech. She had a one-minute video. So we're going to play you the whole thing. I'm getting ready to do something, too. I'm running for president. Our founders never intended us to have a professional political class. They believed that citizens and leaders needed to step forward. We know the only way to reimagine our government is to reimagine who is leading it. I'm Carly Fiorina, and I'm running for president. If you're tired of the sound bites, the vitriol, the pettiness, the egos, the corruption, if you believe that it's time to declare the end of identity politics, If you believe that it's time to declare the end of lowered expectations, if you believe that it's time for citizens to stand up to the political class and say, enough, then join us. It's time for us to empower our citizens, to give them a voice in our government, to come together to fix what has been broken about our politics and our government for too long, because we can do this together. So what does it say about a presidential candidate who starts her announcement 
with a piece of video about another presidential candidate. This is Carly Shtick. I mean, you know, she's making Hillary Clinton the issue, and it's attack, attack, attack. You know, it can sometimes be a little tricky for a male candidate who runs against a female candidate. She won't have that issue. Right, and we had that here in Texas. There was a lot of talk about what uh, now Governor Greg Abbott would or would not be able to say as he was running against Democratic Senator Wendy Davis for the governor's run. Well, of course, the famous episode in Texas, uh, Ann Richards and Clayton Williams, and he just took a nosedive after it was seen that he insulted her by not shaking her hand. Um, And, you know, not shaking a lady's hand, that was not good in Texas. And he went from way up to way down. That's right. I I got an interview with uh, her bag man years later, and he said, you know, she walked off that stage and went into the uh, car afterwards and just looked at everybody on staff and said, folks, he has lost his mind. And he then ended up, of course, losing the race. Uh, Yes, and that's the role she's playing. And, you know, if, if she's asked in different events or when she's asked in different events, do you think that it's important for Republicans to nominate a woman this time around? Of course, she says, well, I have a vested interest in it. But yes, I think that this is a good way to counter uh, Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail. And a good way for her to stand out from all these other candidates. Elizabeth Warren is right. Crony capitalism is indeed alive and well. Government and government programs have grown so big, so powerful, so costly, and so complex that only the big and the powerful can prosper. But Elizabeth Warren is dead wrong about how to end crony capitalism because you see, whether it is Dodd-Frank or Obamacare or net neutrality, all this government complexity means the big get bigger, the small disappear, and the powerless are trapped. I find this cut interesting because in all these speeches, you know, we're kind of picking them apart. Why did they decide to say this? Why did they decide to say that? And we're often, you know, you often hear a line that you just think to yourself, Why did they even include that? That kind of got them off trail. This was pulled from part of her speech at February's Conservative Political Action Conference. And uh, this part of her speech includes a lot of talk about how President Obama and Democrats are destroying small business with overregulation and a tax system that, you know, they say keeps small businesses from having a chance to grow. That's all good stuff. I think that that is something that really strikes a chord with Republican voters. But then, you know, she touches on Obamacare and net neutrality. And again, of course, nobody's a fan of Obamacare on the Republican side. But, you know, businesses with fewer than 50 full-time workers aren't having to do that, uh, offer that health benefit. Um, And she's talking about small employers here. And, of course, net neutrality, you know, if you talk to different people here in Austin where there are tech startups everywhere, you talk to these people that are starting them up and they are uh, they're a fan of net neutrality. It's a losing issue for them. You know, Ted Cruz was against net neutrality and he got you know screamed at by people here in Austin. Um, And it's also just kind of a losing issue to talk about because. People don't understand what it means in the first place, really. I don't understand, fully understand what net neutrality means. So uh, it just doesn't seem like a winning point on the campaign trail. But everybody's talking about the little guy, though, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I find that really fascinating that whether we use the far right Tea Party people or, you know, Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders, everybody's talking about how we can help. So obviously the the economy is is a huge deal. And again, yeah, I that's think that what, that's it's the economy stupid, as they say. That's right. And I think, again, I think that, you know, the first half of that cut was, of course, that makes total sense. But then she kind of ended it as people were just ready to give her, you know, really big applause with kind of muddying the waters, I guess. She tweets 
about women's rights in this country and takes money from governments that deny women the most basic human rights. She tweets about equal pay for women but will not answer basic questions about her own office's pay standards and neither will our president. Hillary may like hashtags, but she does not know what leadership means. So this is from that same CPAC speech. You know, she really takes the wood to Hillary Clinton here. And I, I, I sort of noticed this sneering tone. Uh, she talks about the tweets and the how the nice little talking points uh, are then undermined when she acts in a different way. And everywhere she goes, she mocks Hillary Clinton's line about hitting the reset button with Russia, calls that a gimmick. Um, I, I think that Carly Fiorina can get away with this tone and word choice and harshness that a male candidate probably would avoid for fear of being attacked. And it'll be interesting to see how long she stays in this race. I mean, you know, she's a, a third tier candidate right now, uh, maybe lower second tier. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how long her, um, I don't mean to demean the campaign at all, but how long her usefulness as a Hillary Clinton attack dog, you know, kind of keeps her in this race. Uh, so now we're going to play two more bites, one that we think shows why she could certainly win the GOP nomination, and one uh, that shows why we think she'll lose it. First up, why she'll win. Here's a clip from her announcing her candidacy on Good Morning America while being interviewed by George Stephanopoulos. Our nation was intended to be a citizen government, and somehow we've come to this place in our nation's history where we think we need a professional political class. I don't believe that. And I will tell you, as I've been out there across the country, people don't believe that either. They're kind of tired of the political class. Here is an example of, of course, everyone in the GOP field is promoting themselves as uh, I'm not an insider. Uh, from Rand Paul to Ted Cruz to Ben Carson, Marco Rubio, Rick Perry, and of course to Fiorina, it's all about wanting to replace whomever is perceived to be in control uh, with candidate X, the outsider. Fiorina uh, has never been elected to public office, so she's letting people know that being elected doesn't matter. And in a GOP primary that's packed with the Tea Party and other grassroots activists, outsiders always have a chance to win. Yeah, you know, I do think, though, that uh, having some kind of political title next to your name does matter when you're talking about electing a president. You don't have to have a ton of experience, but... I think just coming in from a, the business world, that's, you know, if she were to take off and, and actually start becoming a viable candidate, people are going to say, wait a minute, you've never served in a, a mayor, a dog catcher, anything. And as for why she uh, certainly might lose, we're going to go back a few years to a debate between Fiorina and Senator Barbara Boxer. Uh, this is from the 2010 California Senate race. Yes, I would support the DREAM Act because I do not believe that we can punish children who through no fault of their own are here trying to live the American dream. Now let me very quickly say, I do not support amnesty for those who have come here illegally. I believe the federal government must secure the border and it has not done its job. I believe as well that the federal government has to come up with a guest worker program that works. Look, with candidates in the lower tier, I always feel like I have to say that they're probably going to lose because they won't get enough attention and they're not going to raise enough money. And in the case of Carly Fiorina, like I just said, uh, she's never held elective office, so that, that's going to be a problem. But if we do get to her issues and she does sort of take off or get a following, 
her this 2010 statement in favor of the Dream Act. I mean, she sounds a little too compassionate in this field. It's that that'll make her stand out, and I think replayed now at a time when uh, all the other Republican candidates are using this issue to pound Barack Obama, that could be a problem. And, you know, someone might say, well, gosh, this was back in 2010. You can't attach this to her. Well, just ask Rick Perry, who had a, uh, a bill signed in 2001 uh, used to cream him in the 2012 campaign. Right. And everybody talks about the oops moment with Rick Perry, but uh, he was going down. He was going because down of because immigration. of the in-state tuition, the immigration issue before that. And that ends this trip to the stump. Uh, Come back next week for a breakdown of the Ben Carson campaign announcement. You're listening to The Ticket from KUT News and the Texas Tribune. I'm Ben Philpott. And I'm Jay Root. The field for 2016 is quickly expanding. And for the next few weeks, we'll have several more Republicans and at least one more Democrat announce their candidacy. And with all those people running, we here at The Ticket thought it was time to bring in a little outside help. So with us today is Chris Saliza, the man in charge of the Washington Post political blog, The Fix. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Man, anytime I get to talk to Texans, it uh, it makes my in-laws happy. They are every person I am related to by marriage lives in Texas. Well, we're <laughs> glad to have them. Yeah, and they and they will never leave. As will uh, everyone else who lives in Texas. <laughs> well, obviously, you've uh, been on this uh, rodeo before. What's your favorite part of the presidential campaign? Uh, good question. Um, I think I sort of like the this part of it, which I, I guess is weird uh, because most people would say, well, what what part of it? You know? <laughs> but there's there's not a whole lot going on. Um, I, I think that the early stages, particularly on the Republican side where you've got so many candidates, th- this is one, at least as a reporter, you have a chance theoretically to to get close to someone, you know, spend a couple days with, uh, um, trying to think of a Rick Santorum, for example, or a Huckabee, and uh, actually get close enough to them that you can have some sense and bring some sense to your readers of who this person really is. You know, I always try to remind myself of Richard Ben Kramer, who, who I loved and, and uh, who wrote a wonderful book called What It Takes about the 1988 presidential campaign, who is unfortunately no longer with us. His whole thing was he wanted to try to figure out who these people were before they were famous and and who they were now and why was that different and what it meant for sort of the country. And I I think now is a good time to do that. You you get to one candidate for Democrats, one candidate for Republicans. You know, there's a billion reporters around. You you can't get access to anything. So I actually kind of like this stage. You know, Jeb Bush has had a rough couple of weeks. If he falters, who's going to be our front runner? So I think it would probably be Scott Walker from Wisconsin if Jeb falters. You know what's interesting is that I, I think there's a tendency to think to, to make the comparison, not among regular people who don't follow this stuff as closely, but but in the sort of political set, to make the comparison between Jeb and George W. Uh, in 1999 versus Jeb today. The, the truth of the matter is it's just not a fair comparison. Uh, George W. was an overwhelming uh, front runner. He had the endorsements of you know twenty five governors. He, the, the, John Kasich, who who I think the governor of Ohio, who I think is going to run this time around, basically dropped out when it became rumored that Je- uh, George W. was going to run. He had huge leads in polling. The only thing that they have in common at this point really is they both are going. Uh, Jeb in two, 2016, George W. in two thousand. They're going to be the sort of financial fundraising leader. But but beyond that, George W. is in a much stronger position than Jeb. So uh, I tend to think. 
think Jeb is sort of marginally the front runner because of money. But I would I usually do a top tier that's Jeb and Walker, and then a sort of one A tier that's Rand Paul and uh, Marco Rubio. Uh, let me ask you about one other candidate. Uh, each week we sort of. Uh, talk about one candidate in particular and size up what they've done. Carly Fiorina. I watched some of her appearances and I have to say I was kind of impressed and I was surprised to be impressed because I thought, oh, she's in the lower tier. What do you think about her? Yeah, I think she's actually um, uh, impressive uh, in in sort of those settings. Small groups, medium-sized groups. Um, I think she's got a decent story to tell. Look, I I mean, I've written this. I think the Republicans should root like hell for Carly Fiorina to move up in national polling so that she makes the top 10 to, to get on the debate stage in August because otherwise you got 10 dudes uh, on stage, which is not the best face that the, you know, for a party that is struggling to make the case that it can be home to Hispanic voters, to women voters who it lost by 11 and 13 in the last two presidential elections. You, you want, if you have a woman running, and certainly someone who's been an executive like Carly Fiorina, uh, you want her on, on the stage. Look, if she becomes more relevant polling wise, there is a negative story to tell about her time at HP that could take some of the shine off of her. But but I would say, uh, I think of the people who are in the race uh, or about to get in that I've been the most impressed with, I would say Rubio number one, uh, and I would put her sort of right there as maybe number two. So you mentioned the debates uh, real quickly. Let's, let's chat about that a little bit. What do you think sure. of these new rules that uh, Fox and CNN have for their first two debates? I'm especially fascinated with the CNN one, the idea of uh, you know letting the AAA team go first and then having the major Isn't league team brutal? after. Oh, I know. God, I mean, look, I, I think my experience here is totally shaped by being an only child and the the oldest cousin in my family. So I was like forever the like teenage kid at the kids' table. Do you know what I mean? You're like oh, yeah. sitting with like six-year-olds and I'm like 16 and I'm like, this is a rip off you know so i mean to me if i was one of those other candidates i would probably say no right i I think you you have the potential to really look diminished if it's sort of like okay we're gonna do the double a all-star game and then we're gonna do the real all-star game um you know what's hard is that these are made for tv events this is not a secret that this has long been the case since the 1960s um And as such, there are sort of logistical challenges. I mean, my attitude would be the more the merrier, right? But I understand that there's sort of those challenges. And I would say um, I don't have a better idea in terms of how do you winnow the field down. I think no matter what you do, if you don't let all 15 or 16 or 17 or however many of them uh, wind up running, if you don't let all of them on, you're going to bother some people and there's going to be some unhappy folks. So it's like... I don't know that the CNN or Fox approach is the best, but I also think any solution would be problematic. We have sort of a different calendar this year. Um, we've got the four early states that that have always been the four early states, but then we have this Super Tuesday primary. How, I mean, are, are these candidates... I think we're calling it the Texas primary. The Texas, well, yeah. That's what we're calling it down here. <laughs> I thought and, we called the whole thing the Texas primary. Well, <laughs> at, 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 the Texas money primary. You can yeah, see where seriously. this is going. I want to know, do you think Texas is going to matter this time in a way that it hasn't mattered in a really, really long time? It That's really true. I mean, I think I, the last time I remember sort of paying any attention to Texas in a primary process was in, two, uh, was in 2008 when, it, you know, it was a legitimate thing although I found the whole, it was a caucus and a primary, they elected delegate. I found that so confusing that I think I zoned out. But, um, you know, 
I guess I'll give you sort of my broader answer, which is I really do believe the combination of the massiveness of the Republican field, just just sheer number, uh, and the fact that virtually all of them have a super PAC aligned with them means that you will see much more picking and choosing of states in the early going than we've seen before. So it's always almost always been if you're the front runner, theoretically, you you have to compete in every uh, one of the early primaries. Everybody says if you don't, you wind up like Rudy Giuliani, who just sort of kept waiting in 2008 to get one that he he could win. And by the time he got to Florida, nobody cared anymore. Um, But I think you're already seeing some indications that you're going to see more of a pick and choose sort of figure out where you can be strong, particularly among those second, third, fourth, and, you know, whatever tier below that exists candidates, because why waste all of your money in a state where you're just, it's not, you're not going to win. If you're Mike Huckabee, you're much better off investing heavily in Iowa, South Carolina, and then theoretically this SEC primary, right? Call it, call it whatever you will, that has maybe Texas and Tennessee, Virginia uh, in it, rather than trying to spend a bunch of money in New Hampshire and maybe Florida where you're not going to win. I would say Scott Walker, who is not a second tier candidate floated the idea that he might skip the Florida primary because Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush are from Florida. You know, I'm breaking news, pulling out of there has Walker running ahead of Rubio. So it's I don't know if that's the best excuse, but I do think you'll see an extended calendar um, as people really look, where can I make my money last longest? And and look, we learned this last time with super PACs. Uh, Newt Gingrich isn't even in the race until South Carolina without Sheldon Adelson's money, Not, not much less winning South Carolina. Uh, I think we'll see more of that this time in an extension of the calendar, which, which I think would suggest there will be a real race in Texas, though the size of Texas and the cost of the media markets there can make it a bit cost prohibitive for some candidates who think, well, if I could win in, let's say, Oklahoma, you know, for one fiftieth of the cost of winning in Texas, maybe I do that. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about a story that you posted up, uh, I guess, this week on your on the blog about uh, Senator Thad Cochran and his uh, yeah. new marriage. You know, last week in the podcast, I kind of talked about the idea of of the media as we're you know covering an eighteen month or two year even presidential cycle. Uh, that we can get distracted by shiny objects sometimes yes. uh, and get away from stuff. And so, you know, and then based on kind of the story that you wrote about whether or not we should care that, you know, a man whose wife had a man whose wife was you know slowly dying with dementia, um, whether or not that's something that we needed to bring into the politics of, of a Senate race. Uh, are we are we doing a worse job of covering elections now? <sighs> Um, it's a good question. Sorry to be I a downer. <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 it makes, it's like an existential crisis. You know, I have to think of, you know, what role do, do I play? I mean, look, I write a, a blog with a, with a staff of folks and we try to push and write a bunch of stuff every day. You know what I mean? Like I, 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 I if we're getting worse, I feel like I'm complicit in it. Um, I think what is difficult is everything feels like a mountain in the moment now. Uh, and because we are reacting and writing in the moment, whereas, you know, it used to be you had a day at least uh, before the next paper came out or maybe a week if you're writing an analysis where you had some time to literally sort of contextualize and think about it. You are now analyzing everything while standing one inch from the picture or, you know, one foot from where the mountain starts. And some mountains are molehills. Uh, we, we've learned that. In fact, most things that look like mountains are molehills in politics. Uh, what's hard from my perspective is you never know totally which ones will really matter or not. I mean, I knew 
uh, I knew the Romney 47% thing, for example, was like a bad thing, right? I, I thought, th- this is going to be bad. Did I think it would be the defining moment of the race? I'd love to tell you I did. I, I thought, okay, this is bad for him. Like, this is a medium-sized mountain. But I, I'm not sure I thought it was sort of like the thing that would effectively end any chance he had of winning. And that's, I live in constant fear of, uh, is, uh, am I sort of using judgment in, in missing what is a big deal? Uh, and so I think that's sort of, it's a difficult question to answer for that reason. So I, hate but I don't to... think, I would say, I don't think we're worse. Okay. Uh, I'm not convinced we're better, but I don't think we're worse. So I hate to, inter- I hate to uh, intrude on our fascinating horse race discussion by introducing <laughs> an actual issue, but everybody seems to be talking about inequality. Have you noticed that? It's whether it's the far right or the far left with, with Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, I thought the economy was on the mend. I mean, how big of an issue is that for voters? I think it's uh, large. Um, one thing that's difficult is, you know, I usually try to look at the exit polling from any election. The problem with the exit polling, it's wonderful in many ways, particularly in terms of slicing and dicing demographic uh, data, the Hispanic vote, Asian vote, black vote, et cetera, et cetera. It's more difficult as it relates to issues because basically voters are prompted with four issues. I think in the last exit poll, it was like the economy, healthcare, immigration, education, or something, taxes, something like that. So the economy, obviously, is always the one that people say influences their vote the most. The problem is they don't, the exit poll doesn't parse beyond that. I do think sort of this sense that the rich are getting richer um, is powerful both on the left and the right. I think Mike Huckabee, as far back as 2008, successfully sort of understood the the power of populism. Uh, I go back and look at the Huckabee campaign of OI, and you know, and this is a a weird one uh, to go back and look just because of some of the personal foibles of this person. But go back. I mean, I went back and read John Edwards to America's speech. He, like that message is extremely the messenger, not so much anymore. But that message is extremely sort of suited to these times. So I actually think it's less new than we sort of give it credit for. I think that it's been a there's been a growing sense that. The, the, the haves and the have-nots are getting further and further away, no matter what the sort of gross domestic product is or what the unemployment rate is every month. People feel as though rich people get taken care of and everybody else gets screwed. Uh, giving voice to that, and, and, and that's why I always think Huckabee has real potential, uh, giving voice to that uh, I think is very, very, very powerful. Well, during this interview, I think three different Republicans have uh, announced that they're running for president. <laughs> so we'll we'll let you go because I know you've got a lot of work there to do. But uh, one quick question before you yes, leave. Um, I just had to ask you about this quote that's on your uh, Twitter account. Uh, <laughs> one of the dumber and least respected of political pundits. And that's how great is that from Donald Trump. So y'all are friends, yes. I guess. Is that right? That is a direct quote. Um, he tweeted that out like two months ago or a month ago and like 4000 people emailed it to me. So I thought, what? A, I mean, you, you don't get better than that. Right. I mean, I sent it to my mom who still wants me to go to law school and told her that I had finally made it. <laughs> Chris Saliza is a Washington Post political writer and the person in charge of the political blog The Fix. He is not dumb, uh, although coming on well, our well, although coming debatable. on our, that's al- the next show. Although coming <laughs> on our uh, podcast may not help with the respect aspect. But uh, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, guys. Love what you do. Finally, here's the straight ticket. 
Several years ago, I accompanied Governor Rick Perry on a campaign swing to southeast Texas, and a big thunderstorm rolled in before the final event of the day. The wind blew so hard that when it came time to leave, the lights had gone out all over town, including the ones at the small airport we were departing from. Inside the governor's plane, the pilots were saying it was unsafe for takeoff, that there were patches of water on the runway, and soon the vision of an overnight stay in industrial Orange, Texas began to creep into my mind. If you've ever been in Orange, you know what I'm talking about. Looking back, I realized that was naive of me. Rick Perry's not one to let a little power outage and some rain slow him down. He instructed a couple of state troopers to drive their patrol cars to the end of that runway and shine their headlights toward the plane. That proved just bright enough to replace the runway lights that had been knocked out. The governor leaned over to me and he said, Root, I'm going to get you home tonight. I bring up that anecdote today because Perry is on the verge of announcing another run for president, and I'm struck once again by his damn the torpedoes attitude in the face of some mighty powerful headwinds. Like the indictments pending against him, which Perry dismisses as a politically motivated farce, of course. Or the embarrassing oops moment from the 2012 campaign, when he could remember that third federal department he wanted to shut down. Or the poll numbers that mostly show him mired in the low single digits. Call it what you will. Swagger, moxie, maybe even recklessness. But Rick Perry has it. And let's face it, he's going to need that and more to win what for him will be a seriously uphill battle to win the 2016 presidential race. But I learned this over the 14 years that Rick Perry lived in the governor's mansion in Texas. You count him out at your peril. That's it this week from The Ticket. Remember, we're on iTunes. Just search The Ticket 2016. Subscribe and please give us a review. You know, we're only one review away from uh, having enough for them to average how many reviews we have, how many stars we've get. So, Come on, uh, guys. Give us one more review. Uh, also, give us a call and ask us a question. We may use your question on a future episode. Our number is 512-943-2016. One more time, 512-943-2016. And make sure you tell us your name when you call. Call us. You can also follow us on Twitter, at the ticket 2016 The Ticket is a co-production of KUT News and the Texas Tribune. The show was mixed by Ben and edited by Matt Largy. Our studio engineer is David Alvarez, and our theme music is by Ben Root. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.